Welcome to Inclusion Catalyst with your hosts, Mickey Desai and Susan Cooper. We invite diversity leaders to the table to deconstruct complex social justice issues and showcase the best inclusion practices in our workplaces and our communities. Hello, this is Mickey Desai, one of your hosts for this week's episode of the Inclusion Catalyst. Across the table, I'm sitting for my co-host, Susan Cooper. Hello. Susan, could you do us the honor of introducing our guest today? Sure, I'd love to. Here with us today is Soon-Mi Kim. She is an award-winning global diversity leader for Porter Novelli. She's also an all-around awesome human being. And uh, so we're very happy to have her here today. Welcome to the podcast, Soon-Mi. Thank you, Susan. Nice to see you (laughs) and you too, Mickey. Absolutely. I've been waiting for this for a while. I'm glad we can make this happen. So, um, So yeah, Susan, where do you think we should start this conversation? Well, There are so many, you know, as a global diversity and inclusion leader at a global company, uh, I know that you have a lot of opportunities to talk to a lot of different companies, you know, not just your own, and you go to a lot of conferences. So there's a lot of issues that that you are would be great to talk to you about. As a global leader in the diversity and inclusion space, what do you think are some of the most pressing issues for large corporations to be considering? Well, wow, Susan, can I just say everything? (laughs) No, um, no, truly, um, I think about diversity and inclusion really in two major ways, right? So number one, as a business imperative and, but also as a moral imperative. So let's talk about the business imperative for just a moment to think about diversity in another way. Is there a part of your organization, any organization that is best served by sameness? Is there a part of your organization where like, wow, you know what? Homogeneity really works for us. (laughs) I don't think so, right? So when I think about diversity and inclusion in organizations, it's a mistake, I think, to think of it only um, as an adorable little program within, let's say, human resources, for example, Um, not to diminish the incredible importance of that function. But diversity has a role in how you think about things. It's about transformation. It's about sales and how you reach customers and about your culture, about uh, your employee engagement. It runs really the gamut. And so I really think when organizations think about diversity in a a box, um, that is a mistake. But secondly, I would say from the moral imperative standpoint, um, I find that people, all people, we are looking for a connection to something very meaningful. And when we look at representation in, um, in a company or in our own organizations, that communicates something. I believe that the workplace has a really important role to play, um, particularly because so much of our lives are very segregated, right? So from where we live to where our children may go to school or our places of worship, you name it, the workplace can be a real catalyst for helping us understand, have exposure, build relationships with others. So I, I think about it really from those two standpoints. Can I backtrack for a second? Yes. Tell me a little bit more about your journey into doing this kind of work. Yeah. How did you get attractive to sorry, how did you get attracted to DNI work for a major company and and what was your pathway to getting there? Yeah, so there's 
probably two ways of answering that. Um, so the first part of it is I am a communications professional and have been really my entire career and in an agency setting. I have been with Porter Novelli, uh, it'll be 14 years in November. Um, but most of that time was as a client counselor, as a client relationship leader, um, as a practice leader. And what brought me to this role that I have currently is because I am also a beneficiary of working in a very diverse, at least racially diverse office. And there's an example um, that we talk about in our implicit bias training that we do that um, there's something really important that happens when you work in teams, when you are working towards a common goal, when you're living life with others. And I am Again, I'm the beneficiary of that. Um, so when things are happening, in my case, um, and I think the case of many people, if you all can remember the um, issues that were taking place in July 2016, where there were a number of um, shootings of unarmed black men by police, um, our office was in mourning. And it was um, in a staff meeting that um, our managing director at the time, Melissa Taylor, brought to us all together. And that in that room, um, a lot of tears, a lot of trust, um, and a lot of folks sharing what their experience was like. Now, if you don't know anybody, um, and you can go through something just in the news and maybe that might not affect you. But when you're living life where these issues impact people that you care deeply about, you cannot unsee and unknow um, that experience. So all of that to say, I think that combined with, um, you know, I think who I am in terms of growing up in the U.S. as a as an immigrant or a daughter of immigrants, um, I think that all kind of really comes to bear. Hmm. It's amazing how what some people would argue is a political issue around race really hits home and becomes part of the narrative even where you work. And I know I can think that many places would say it's just the news. It's not important to the work that we do. But clearly that was not the case for you and your cohort. Absolutely. Um, you know, I wasn't here at Porto Novelli during that period when, when that experience uh, happened, but I was here with you um, at Porto Novelli about, I think it was last fall, maybe a year ago, mm-hmm. when uh, you were facilitating a, a discussion about bias. You had this PowerPoint presentation, this lovely um, program set and ready to go, but the questions that you sort of raised as some, some icebreakers, um, people started talking about their experiences, and this kind of beautiful, magical discussion unfolded and you just said, okay, well, let's forget about the PowerPoint because this is better. And I, I mean, I, I thought it was one of the best discussions I've ever had mm-hmm. about, about bias and race. And um, I think that a lot of that was to credit you that, that you were a great facilitator of the discussion, but it was also maybe, I think, one of my first opportunities to have a, a team discussion with a diverse group already. Like when I've had discussions like that before, it was with peers that were not really diverse. They were Mm -hmm. all like me. And um, so I think something really magical happened in that room. And so I'm wondering how can people 
and and other organizations facilitate discussions like that. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm thank you for that feedback. Um, I will also say that has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the people in the room. Um, and I think the primary ingredient there is trust. Mm. I'm so um, grateful um, that there is a culture of trust, um, particularly in this office, where individuals felt they could share their stories mm-hmm. and um, and that we get to learn and listen and share as a part of that. So um, I'm sorry, the other part of your question was how do we do that in other settings? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I really think that's where di- the diversity discussion is really about culture, right? Mm-hmm. And when organizations really value their people um, and recognize how culture can be really an advantage, a competitive advantage, just or just a matter of retention and the inclusion part of all of this. Um, And when folks can have that kind of connection with one another where they feel very comfortable, um, you know, sharing who they are, knowing that they're not going to be judged, they're not going to, um, it's going to be the career limiting moment for them. Um, I think when people say like, oh, bring your whole self to work, that's what that means. I think that's a living out of what that means. You don't think people are generally genuine when they come to work? Is that what I'm hearing you say? In most cases, I think think there is a reason why um, many people, people of color, perhaps you know, women, talk about this idea of imposter syndrome, right? And I think that is partially because we do feel judged, right? And when you think about a work environment, there is a hierarchy, right? Do we mm-hmm. know that, um, you know, whether it's your reviews or salary, but there's also a power dynamic and all of that, that, yeah, there's definitely, for many people, yeah, where you you feel like you have to put on a a bit of a mask. You have to take on a certain persona, if you will, um, at work. So, yeah. I mean, clearly, I'm not surprised to hear you say that, having been in the same situation before, it's easy to see that people don't trust their coworkers or they don't have a cohesive working relationship within their own environments. But as much as I know it happens, I'm always surprised to hear it happens. Yeah, yeah. I think it's that idea of code switching, right? right. That we have to operate in an environment that we know is, is safe for us. And I think that's really it. So what you're saying then is it's the, the culture that you're talking about is not the culture from wherever your colleagues come from. It's mm-hmm. the culture of trust within the organization. Absolutely. The yeah. organizational culture, for sure. How do you do that? How do you... Go about shaping the culture. Let's say, for instance, you were to walk into an organization that didn't already have at least, um, like, it it sounds like your work environment here, people were already open to being open with each other Mm -hmm. and trusting each other. Yes. What happens if you walk into a situation where that doesn't exist? How do you go about changing that for them or helping them to change that? Right. You know, I don't think that there's a, like, a one path to that. But what I do think and what I would guide, you know, my clients on or um, any organization is that that's when our values have to mean something, right? And when we think about purpose, a lot of people talk about purpose, but what is your purpose? Um, And what is the connection to that? How do you make your values in support of that real? Um, So more than words on a plaque, on a wall, I think that there really is a yearning across the board 
for people to connect with things that really matter. Gosh, I listened on a radio interview many years ago. There was this book out, and it was called um, One Nation Under Dog. (laughs) And it looked at different, um, like, dog names and what those names represent in terms of our relationship with our pets. And there's one period of time it was really kind of very functional, right? Um, Rover, um, something like that. And then there came a period of time when it was very descriptive. So it might be spot or old yeller. And then it became something, I guess, kind of cutesy, like cuppy cake. I don't know. (laughs) But you know what they are right now? Chloe. Yeah. Spencer. You know, people (laughs) refer to themselves as pet parents. Um, More people have told me, because my younger daughter is Chloe, like, oh, that's my cat's name. (laughs) That happens a lot. Mm -hmm. So as somebody that thinks about brands and is a communicator, I think about, like, products too, right? So, you know, having... um, you know, spent time in the 70s when I think about Tang or a whatchamacallit or a $100,000 bar. Those are all reflections on our values. But what are they now? Honest tea, honest diapers, kind bars. We're even looking for our products because I think that there is a hunger and a desire to connect with values. I think even when we look at um, council culture or call-out culture is that we want a connection to something that is good and true. So um, I don't know if that really answered your question, Mickey, but I think there's a desire to really connect to some things that matter. And I think that organizations, when they connect to their values, can be that. I think that does answer the question, at least in terms of, you know, trying to make sure that not only is there a values commitment, but that there's sort of a, for lack of a better phrase, a daily reflection onto that values commitment. I'm helping another nonprofit do a strategic planning session, which starts with the mission and then the values commitment. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm trying to get them to say that every strategic priority they have should always tie back to that values commitment. And Mm -hmm. apparently it's the same way for uh, the corporate sector as well. It should. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, we, you touched earlier on um, sort of how our lives are segregated. And, mm-hmm. and I noticed that someone on Twitter quoted you as saying, we have to be intentional about desegregating our lives. And I completely agree with that sentiment. You have to really make an effort. If you notice that your life is segregated, you need to like, people ought to sort of make an effort to break that pattern. Um, so how do you suggest people go about doing that? Well, I think the first step is to recognize that that is the case. The research, the data shows that that is the case. So let's take schools, for example. There was an article that came out a while ago about just like the top schools in New York, right? And how it's like so missing people of color, right? Specifically um, um, black and brown people, right? Um, And when we look at ratios and and so forth related to busing. I mean, our schools are more segregated now than they were pre-busing. Let's look at our places of worship. People have long spoken of um, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning as the most segregated hour in America. Um, I don't think that that has changed. So I think that recognition that... um, of our in a reflection on our lives as a whole, that is true, and I think that really speaks to the division that exists in in America, in this country. So, in the matter of the desegregating, you know, I don't think it really has to be that hard. I don't think we have to have diversity paralysis, which I see a lot. A few ways I would think about it is this: Do you have 
access to the internet? <laughs> Do you have a Netflix account? You know, just even simple things like that. Uh, there are a growing um, group of stories that are being told now from different perspectives. I was in talking with my Lyft driver the other day. She happened to be African-American and was telling me about how her daughter loves BTS, which is this K-pop group and watches all these K-dramas. And I'm like, and I'm not even into that. And <laughs> I am Korean. But you know, like people have access to so many other cultures and perspectives and points of view. So even from, you know, that perspective of just access to media, there are more stories being told now from other perspectives that I think that we can learn from. Now, um, and, and in other cases, I just have to say, like, gosh, you know what? Make a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I get it. As an adult in particular, it's a little bit harder to make friends than maybe it was when we were younger. But I know that there is some fear there. Here's my, the script that I would maybe suggest is that, hi, I know that you don't um, have to be like the person who like educates me on everything, but I'm just sincerely coming to you that I've you know, looked at um, some things and there's some things that I don't know. And I would love to, um, you know, I'd love it if, to learn from you. And Again, I know people will be like, ah, do I have to be the person who has to like educate everybody? And, and like, you know what? You don't have to. But I find in most cases, people, when they are approached with sincerity, they like to help people. Um, so that's one thing I would say. And I, in the other cases I would say is like, you know what? Just bring up the question. Bring, like, you know, this is what I see that's going on in society. You know, these organizations that I'm connected to. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how my, let's say, place of worship or how my school, um, you know, addresses this kind of situation and the representation. I'd like to know, you know, what our, you know, if I go into my company, what uh, what is our view on um, on the importance of diversity and representation in our organization? Sometimes just those simple questions um, can actually make a difference, um, at least a start. Mm-hmm. I think podcasts are another great example yes. of, of how people can consume media um, that's produced by and, and created by people that may be different from them. And podcasts are such a great way for people to tell their stories and share their personal experiences. There's so many, I've learned a lot from from so many different podcasts of, of people that are different from me. And it's sort of a, a great way to really learn about people that are different from me and, and learn about their perspectives. I agree. I mean, podcasts and Twitter. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Twitter is a social, as a means for social change. It's kind of funny. But I mean, what we are talking about, again, still, I think, comes down to trust. And maybe that's my own intellectual bias, my backgrounds in counseling psychology. Mm-hmm. And so when it, when I, and, and I could be wrong around about this, I'm not the pro you are. But I think when people look at each other in terms of the possibility of making a friendship, there's always that subconscious cost benefit analysis on what it means and is it is is it worth it to try to trust this person and on the other side of that question is you know what's the risk involved here but then i raise a question about that is we're all adults what is there to risk what am i going to lose by walking up to another person and talking to them to say hey could you could you teach me about this thing and are they going to hurt me probably not but why then are we so afraid to risk and trust, and therefore, why are we afraid to learn? So, I so agree. Yeah. I so agree. But fragility is real. Yeah, fragility mm-hmm. is real. 
Hmm. That may be a topic for a whole other conversation there. So. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of equity. Mm. Um, I think most people are generally, they know what diversity and inclusion is. But what does equity mean at work? What does mm. equity mean at your, at a company, be it a, a corporation or a nonprofit or a small business? Right. So I will start by saying I don't necessarily agree with all the parsing of words that occurs in when we talk about diversity, right? Mm -hmm. So somehow like diversity only meant the numbers. And so then we added inclusion. And so an inclusion is about the retention and culture. And, and, and then, we, and like, you know, now we got to add equity because, you know, things um, we have to address the inequity that exists. I think really all of that is diversity, but and I think that's telling. I think the fact that um, there is a certain marginalizing that happens with a word to not be, um, not have the breadth of definition versus trying to limit that, I think there's a message there. Um, but that wasn't your question. <laughs> your question is about equity. And equity as a part of diversity is looking at things like pay equity right? It's looking at things like the rate of promotion. It's looking at retention. It is looking at, you know, um, underrepresented um, populations and why. So I think it's really adding a little bit more depth to what I think really was started with, um, I guess, you're seeing air quotes. You can't hear air quotes, but <laughs> like diversity. Um, but I think it's really a continuation of what is more fully diversity. Diversity, of course, is about equity. Of course, um, inclusion is a part of diversity. I think it's really everything. So for people who perhaps don't have a, a DNI leader at their corporation, but they value, maybe they're in the C-suite or maybe they're not in the C-suite, they just really want to bring more diversity discussions, diversity culture into their company, where should they start? Yeah, so I will start with, you don't have to have um, a lot of programs. Um, you don't have to program things to to death. I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence of places that had a lot of programs that actually makes no difference. Um, what I think really is helpful, especially if you're a maybe a smaller organization or maybe you don't have a lot of the formal roles and, and that type of thing, is that I think actually the smaller organizations have a they don't have to deal with the bureaucracy, right? They don't have to deal with I think as many challenges. I think of a um, company in town, um, Shadow Ventures, right? They're very intentional about um, how they're going about their business and how they do things. And they are able to um, create a, a diverse group because they're smaller, right? And I think that's actually in many ways a leg up. Um, but I also think about maybe the nonprofit world and where we think that maybe things are like, because it's the nonprofit world, things are um, maybe better. It's not. I think there's also, you know, challenges there. I actually tweeted something um, a little bit earlier today from a good friend of mine, Helen Kim Ho, um, about the tokenization that we see, that we put people of color as spokespeople, let's say, or the face of something, but the power rests in the old power structures, which is largely white. So I think there's every... Uh, whether you're a large organization or a smaller organization or you're a nonprofit organization, I think we have to like be careful where we're um, deceiving ourselves. 
an example of that, I would say, is for all of our Porto Novelli, um, particularly our owned offices, we have diversity champions in each of them. So in some ways, those are smaller organizations, if you will. And oh my gosh, you know, office by office, they kick butt. Mm-hmm. And it's not their primary job. They are um, definitely motivated by purpose and passion to do this. It's kind of their extra job, if, if you will. And, you know, we work as a team um, to bring really amazing programming. So I'll spotlight in our Mexico City office, Andy Ponce. She, you know, is someone who they have a great culture in Mexico City, but she has brought, you know, um, implicit bias training based on, you know, what um, she has developed. She brings together um, folks around um, Pride, Pride Month. They have like the most elaborate um, Pride support and functions um, during that month. And all, our LA office is, is really strong in that front too. So I think it really starts with people who care, uh, people who have a passion for, um, you know, bringing these these issues to the fore and being supported by people around them to um, participate. And again, going back to even that issue of trust and values, um, I think those are really powerful ingredients for doing things really in any context, whether small or large. Mm -hmm. That's great. You mentioned bureaucracy is, and I can imagine that bureaucracy sort of gets in the way of really being conducive to both being genuine and towards making change. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's, it's difficult to make the Queen Mary turn. Mm-hmm. Um, but And yet, um, I, I, I've met organizations that actually do exactly that. And they have one C-level DNI executive, and, and then I'm not sure what happens after that. Is there a way for, for a, an employee of a company to bring change about that doesn't get hampered by bureaucracy? Yes and no. Okay. So the yes part of it is like we're already seeing that. We're seeing an explosion of people where um, across a lot of organizations, and it doesn't have to be senior people, and often in many cases it's very junior people, um, mid-level, really across the board, that's like, hey, this matters to me. And I see this issue of diversity as something really important to our organization. I am raising my hand to, um, to lead an effort. Will you support me? So I see that a lot, and I think it's great. Um, and then the second part of that is like, you know what? You need buy-in. You need buy-in at that senior level. Um, otherwise, it becomes that pet project, right? It right. becomes cosmetic, and um, that's not a good place to be. So you do. So I think it's both up top, top down, but also bottom up. The passion and the interest, I think, is something that really should get the attention of um, – the C-suite. If they're smart. If they're smart. If they're- <laughs> and then honestly, really, I find that a lot of people are coming um, to this discussion because they are trying to hire great people. Mm-hmm. And they're having a hard time because they know they have no diversity in their senior leadership um, and really across their organization. And so it's often from that um, lens that people say, that, ooh, we got to do something. Right. Right. So I think and you got to speak the language of, right. of folks. So, right. you know, for some people, you know, I start with the moral imperative and because I find sometimes the business um, case like really trivializing. Um, but in other cases where, you know, I know that that is very influential in how they think about things, you have to bring it, um, bring the business case too. So me, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I, I'm, I'm sad to say we're out of time. Is there anything else we should 
touch on really quick before we wrap up? I just had the the last call to action question. Yeah. Um. So if what are what are two things that you wish people would do to be more mindfully inclusive in their personal lives and in their workplaces? I would really focus on this. I think it's really important for us to recognize um, that one-to-one relationship and that importance of make, reaching out, making a friend, being a mentor. Those are not hard things to do, honestly. There are boards that would love to have the service of people that may be listening to this podcast. There are people who do not have the networks and the um, connections um, to advance their career that I think many people on this podcast could potentially be that person for them. So I would just say, like, really increase your network. Be a mentor. Initiate those connections. So I think that would be maybe one way that uh, folks be more intentional about um, increasing diversity in a small way. People should do their own outreach. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very cool. Thank you. I honestly, I, I thank you for making time to do this podcast. This has been really fun. Oh, my pleasure. I hope we get to do this again sometime. That'd be fun. To our, uh, to our listening audience, thank you for joining us for this episode of The Inclusion Catalyst. We'll see you again in a couple weeks. And that's it for this episode of Inclusion Catalyst. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. 